Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us now so that we would long for your precepts and long for your word and that then you would preserve our lives in your righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be looking again at the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we're up to chapter 25 in our series from the prophet 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25, which is found on page 287, page 287, 1 Samuel chapter 25, and this book uh, falls in a time in Israelite history where there is great turmoil uh, happening uh, amongst the people of God. Uh, where does it fall in history? Well, I'll give you a bit of a recap as to where, uh, of course, the Bible opens with the creation of the world. Adam and Eve are the first parents of all of humanity. Uh, from them, you eventually get Abraham. From Abraham, you get the 12 uh, grandsons of Abraham who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they end up in the land of Egypt in slavery under Pharaoh. They are then led out of Egypt by Moses into the promised land. Um, well, not he takes them to the edge of the promised land, then Joshua takes them into the promised land in the book of Joshua. Then they have a series of judges who God sends uh, to help them in their times of distress as other nations war against them. And at this point in time, uh, 1 Samuel lands where you've got the last of the great judges, who is Samuel, the prophet, and he is then used by God to transition the, church, uh, the, the Israelites into being a monarchy, to having a king. And he anoints the first king of Israel, uh, Saul. And then Saul uh, turns out to be a bit of a bad egg, so to speak. And he is one who uh, does not obey the Lord. And so then uh, Samuel anoints the second king of Israel, and that is David. Saul does not like David, and so David has had to flee, and we've been looking at his journeys away from Saul and what's been happening to him, and Saul's journeys after David and trying to catch him and kill him, and that's what we looked at in 1 Samuel chapter 24 uh, last week. And so this morning we pick up the narrative at 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you've got a church Bible, you can open it to page 287, and there we see a momentous event which is only really um, in half a verse given to us, and that is in verse uh, 1 of chapter 25, what happens? Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. There is an end of an era there. Uh, the great last judge of Israel uh, dies, and now we just have Saul and David uh, as the leaders of Israel. Of course, Saul is leading the whole of Israel. David is leading his men around in the desert. Now, what is he up to while he's going around with his few hundred men in the desert, well, he's actually protecting the Israelites. He's actually serving the Israelites. Uh, David is not king over Israel in the way that Saul is, but he is nonetheless has a heart for the Israelites. And we even saw that back in 1 Samuel chapter 23. What did he do at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 23? Well, we see that he fights against the Philistines who are attacking the Israelites in Keilah. We read in verse 1 of chapter 23, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack the, these Philistines? And the Lord, of course, tells him to go and he is able to inflict heavy losses on the Philistines and save the people of Keilah. So he's not being idle while he's out uh, and about, he is still looking out for the people of God. And he is also, in chapter 25, we learn, he's protecting the flocks and herds of Israelites. And one in particular is mentioned for us in chapter 25, and that is a man called Nabal. 
in chapter 25. We'll read from uh, halfway through verse 1, the new paragraph there, where it says, Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favourable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So here we see that David, he expresses to this man that I've been looking after your flocks and herds. Now you may think, oh, why is he doing that? It sounds like some sort of protection racket, like the mafia. You know, I'll look after you, but if you don't pay me something, then I will inflict losses upon you. No, we've got to understand that this is a time when you didn't have the regular police force like we enjoy today, and people could come and start raiding uh, flocks and herds, and so it was up to local authorities uh, who may be around, people of great force that may be around to try and protect you. And so it was a common occurrence that people would do this, and particularly people like David, who are there with men who can make sure that uh, the enemy, non-Israelites, wouldn't take off with other people's flocks, with the Israelite flocks. And so it's a reasonable request that he would say, look, if there's something that you can give to me, then please give it to me and my men for the protection that we have shown to you, not a protection racket in that we would hurt you if you didn't pay us off, but we have shown protection for your people from others. And what is Nabal's response? Well, we read in verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered, David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Nabal responds by refusing to give anything to David. And so how does David respond? Well, we read in verse 12, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. What is David's response? Well, it's one of wanting to take revenge. And... How does Nabal's household feel about this? We know how Nabal's household feels about David uh, wanting some supplies from them. How does his household feel? Well, we read in verse 14. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So here we see that the household is concerned about David's request and then Nabal's response. And so then what does 
Abigail do? As she sees these worried servants and hears what they have to say, what does she do? Well, we read in verse 18. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisin and two hundred cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So what is she doing? Well, she's preparing a gift and she's going to meet David with that gift. And where is David? What's he been up to? Well, we read in verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Here we see that David is still on his way and he really is bent on revenge. He has not put on his sword as decoration. He's put it on as one who is going to put to death those who have been so evil towards him and the righteousness that he has done. Now, how does Abigail come to David? What does she do next? Well, she intercedes for her and her household. And we read this in verse 23. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. Here we see her interceding on behalf of her, herself and her household before David as he is bent on righteousness in dealing out the punishment to that house. And what does she do firstly? She confesses sin. She confesses her sin and she confesses the sin of Nabal. But what else does she do as she comes to intercede? She confesses sin and then we see in verse 27 and 28, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offence, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. What does she do? She confesses sin, she acknowledges the sin, but she also points to the gift that she has given. We see that in verse 27, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. She recognises that a wrong has been done, that someone has done something right, and instead of someone doing what is right in response in giving to that person, that that person has been shunned. And so now she is like, please take this as an atonement for our sin, but also what you rightfully deserve. And so she looks at this gift and, and wants forgiveness, as we see in verse 28, but also recognising that a wrong has been done and restitution must be made. And then she moves to forgiveness. After pointing to the gift, she moves to forgiveness. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's offence. She asks for mercy. She asks for forgiveness from David as she intercedes. And then what does she do? Well, she acknowledges David's righteousness. She acknowledges the righteousness of the other person. Verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. 
but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away from the pocket of a sling. She recognizes his righteousness and his relationship with the Lord. Verse 30, when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. So here we see Abigail interceding on behalf of herself and the household. And what does she do? She confesses her sin. She points to a gift to make restitution. She asks for forgiveness. And she acknowledges the righteousness of the other person. She acknowledges the righteousness of David. That she has done wrong, but he has not. And so what is the response of David as she comes and intercedes? What is the response? What is the result? Well, firstly, we see that God is praised. Look with me at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. He acknowledges God's providential care in sending this woman to meet him, and so that her, she prospers in the household and that he prospers as well. And what else do we see is the result? Well, forgiveness is granted. Look with me at verse 33. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. What was her request? For forgiveness. He has given her forgiveness. And along with that, what is the result? Well, we see that she is saved, along with the rest of the household, that their lives are saved as a result of the intercession of Abigail. And more than that, not just her life is saved, but she is actually released from bondage to a wicked master and marriage to an even better husband. What do we read in verse 36? Look with me at verse 36 and following. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk, so she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a rock, a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, "'Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt.' He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant, ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were both his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galam. So here we see that Abigail is released from her bondage, her connection to a terrible husband in Nabal, and actually ends up marrying David. And so David is a blessing to Abigail, and Abigail is a blessing to him as well. Because we see in this passage as well that David's ascent to the throne is protected. 
We've been looking at David as he's been coming to the throne, and we've been seeing how basically 1 Samuel, I emphasized this very strongly last week, 1 Samuel is a, a great apologetic for David's ascent to the throne, a great defense of the fact that he is the rightful king of Israel. And if things had gone differently in this passage, in this incident, then there would be questions raised about his right to the throne. Imagine if he had gone and butchered all these fellow Israelites. These are not Philistines, these are fellow Israelites. We looked at last week, if he had killed Saul, what would that have done to his ascent to the throne? If he had killed the king of Israel while he was toileting, the damage that that would have done to his claim to the throne. Imagine if he had butchered these men here. What he was off to do, was it really a righteous thing? Maybe, but maybe not. Usually, if someone has done you wrong, you're meant to take it to the elders and the authorities. They're the ones who would deal it out. And maybe Nabal does deserve to die in his household. But it would be the authorities, the elders of the community, that would be the ones responsible for handing that out and ultimately the king of Israel. David is taking matters into his own hands. He's taking vengeance. And so his ascent to the throne is protected by Abigail here and, of course, by the Lord. And so that is the great result that comes through this as well, and which means that then, of course, as I said last week, that David's right to the throne as a descendant from David, uh, sorry, Jesus' right to the throne as a descendant from David is secure as well. Otherwise, we might have some questions about whether Jesus, as a descendant from David, has a right to the throne if it really is another family that has the right to the throne of Israel. But what can we then learn from this passage? What can we learn? Well, there's many things we can learn. But there's one thing that stands out to us as we have similar conflicts with our fellow human beings, as we recognise that we also sin against others, that we are ungrateful to those around us, and we often will have people in our lives who have something against us. We have sinned against them, and disaster is coming to us because of our sin against that person. And so we can learn from Abigail as to how we should behave. What should we do? Well... If someone has something against us, we should go to them and confess our sin, acknowledge the wrong that we have done. What might that include? Well, it might actually include distancing ourselves from those around us, even our family, who have sinned also. We see that with Abigail. She says, I have sinned and Nabal has sinned. That's her husband. Isn't she meant to respect her husband? No, not when he has sinned so grievously. And that may be the case for us as well. If someone has something against us and we know that we have sinned, we go to that person and confess our sin. And what else should we do? Well, like Abigail, we should make some sort of restitution if the sin is very serious. She made sure that she had a gift to give, and we should do the same as well. If we have stolen from others, we should return it with some interest on top of it so that we can show that we really are repentant for what we have done. And what else should we do? Well, we should ask for forgiveness. That's what she did. She pointed to the gift, she confessed the sin, but she also asked specifically for forgiveness for her sin. And what else should we do? Well, we can follow her example and acknowledge the righteousness of the other person, that they have done the right thing, that we have done the wrong thing. And they are in the right in this position, whereas we are in the wrong. And hopefully, what will the result be? Well, hopefully, we'll get the same result that Abigail got that we're told to go home in peace. Why? Because the person has heard our confession and granted our request for forgiveness. They can't really hold much against us if we're there saying, I'm really sorry, and here's something to make up for it. They can't complain about us and our sin if we keep on saying, yes, yes. They keep pointing their sin, our sin out to us. If we keep saying, yes, yes, I am a sinner, I'm terrible for what I've done, 
they can't really keep on going on about it because we're acknowledging our wrong. And what is the final result? Well, of course, God's name will be praised for his providential care in making sure that reconciliation takes place and vengeance is not going to be dished out. And if we're wronged like David, we can also learn from this passage what we should do if someone asks for forgiveness. If we're in David's shoes and we have an Abigail before us and they're asking for forgiveness and they're offering to make up for the wrong that they've done, what should we do? We should have mercy upon them. We should forgive and be restrained from excessive retaliation that we may make against that person. And why should we ultimately do it? So that God's name is praised, so that care is given to the person, who is the Abigail, and care is given to us. But Abigail also shows us how to intercede with a new David. And I think this is the most important lesson that we can take away from this passage. We can learn, of course, how to interact with others when they have sinned against us or if we have sinned against them. But Abigail shows us how to reconcile with a new David. Who is that new David? Well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a new David. He is a descendant of David, and he is the one who has arisen and strapped on his sword and is coming to meet us with a heavenly army. And the Bible teaches this. Look with me at a passage in Scripture from Jude. Jude, which is the second last book of the Bible. Jude, there is only one chapter, so it's chapter 1. Jude, chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 14 of Jude. It's found on page 1,213. 1,213. Jude, verse 14, we read, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who are these men that God is coming, that the Lord Jesus is coming to judge with his heavenly army, with his sword? Well, these are the modern Nabals. These are these fools who have been ungrateful to the Lord. We see them described in verse 16 and following. It says, these men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So many of those words there describe Nabal back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, don't they? But who else are they that are described in Jude there? Well, it's all the human race ultimately. We are all guilty like these men that Jude is describing. Yes, we've all been foolish like Nabal. How? Well, we've all been ungrateful for Christ and the protection that he has given us. Remember David? He protected Nabal's flocks and herds and his servants. And how did Nabal respond? With ingratitude. And that is how we are. All the human race has been protected from so much damage. And yet we are ungrateful to Jesus Christ. We are grumblers and fault finders, following our own evil desires and boasting about ourselves. 
And what did David say about Nabal? He said, it's been useless my watching over this fellow. He's paid back evil for good. What does Jesus say about the human race then? Same things. I've been a hedge around all of humanity, not treating them as their sins deserve. I've been looking after them and they have been ungrateful. They have paid back evil for good. That describes all the human race. And what will the result be for all of our ingratitude? Well, Jude tells us, tells us that it's certain destruction. Look with me at verse 4 of Jude. Verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own homes, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That's what happens to the ungodly. Again and again in that passage I just read, we see the punishment that is coming upon those who do not believe, who are ungrateful to the Lord Jesus for his kindness to them in this world. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Well, we need to be an Abigail and not an Nabal. How do we behave like an Abigail? Well, we confess our sin to Christ and the sin of our family, our family head, going right back to Adam and Eve. We are meant to say, like Isaiah, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what else are we to do? We are to appease with a gift to make atonement for our sin. Our sin is so serious that we can't say, just forgive me and we'll move on. No, it is terrible. We have the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we have our own actual sin as well, of our ingratitude, our rebellion against God. All the things that are described there in Jude can be said of us, the ungodliness of our lives. And so we need to appease the king coming with his sword, with a gift, 
that will satisfy. Now, what possibly could that gift be? How can we make up for all our sin and the sin of our first parents? Well, there is a gift, thankfully, and it's the sacrifice of Christ Jesus himself. It's this wonderful truth that the king has provided a sacrifice, has provided a gift that if we offer to him, it will satisfy his wrath. By trusting in Christ's death at the cross as payment for our sin, we offer him as payment to him. Kind of does our heads in a bit, but that is the truth. He, in his generosity, said, I have offered myself, if you will accept it by faith and offer it to me as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to appease my wrath, I will receive it. So what are we to do? We're to be an Abigail. We confess our sin. We admit that we have done wrong. We point to the sacrifice and say, that is all I can give you. Nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. And then what do we do? We beg for forgiveness, like Abigail. Like that tax collector that we read about in Luke. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He offers nothing. The Pharisee trusts in his own righteousness. The tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jude advises that as well. Jude advises the people of God, to continue to look to God for his mercy. Look with me at verse 20 of Jude. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the most holy faith. Keep trusting in the Lord and keep yourselves in his love as you wait for his mercy. This is what distinguishes the readers of the letter from the ungodly there. Not that they have been more righteous. As I've said again and again, what is described in Jude can be said of the whole human race. What distinguishes the readers of the letter? That they are dependent upon the mercy of God, that they are trusting in God, despite the fact that they have been as bad as the other people who they see so clearly now through the eyes that God has given them. So we come to God as Abigail. We come to Jesus and we confess our sin. We point to the sacrifice. We ask for forgiveness and we acknowledge his righteousness. That's what Abigail did with David, didn't she? She confessed her sin. She pointed to the gift to make restitution. She asked for mercy. She asked for forgiveness. And then she spoke about the righteousness of David. And that is what we are supposed to do. We speak about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We cannot point the finger at him and say, somehow you're to blame. Why did you let Adam and Eve do that? Bring guilt upon me? No, 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 you have been righteous all along. That is what we are to do. We are to acknowledge Christ's righteousness, that he is God's righteous king, and we are the ones who are wholly in the wrong. And why should we bother doing this? Why should we be the Abigail? Well, what is the result? If we do what Abigail did, but with Jesus, the new David, well, we give praise to God. We give praise to God for his providential care. Why? Well, Jesus will tell us to go in peace. Why? Because he has heard our request and granted our request by the Spirit. When we act as an Abigail to other humans, we hope that they will forgive us. 
doesn't matter how much you confess your sin and try to make restitution with some people. They won't want to forgive. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. If you come and you confess your sin, if you come and you point to the sacrifice for restitution, if you come and you ask for forgiveness, if you come and you acknowledge his righteousness, he forgives. He forgives. He always forgives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is the result? Our lives are saved from the king's deathly wrath which we deserve for our evil. And what is the great result that comes from being in Abigail? Well, we actually get freedom from marriage to sin and are married to Jesus Christ. Marriage to Christ Jesus. He actually takes us as his bride and promises to look after us for all of eternity. So which will you be? Which will you be? Will you be an Abigail or a Nabal this morning? Are you going to realise that destruction is hanging over you like destruction hung over Nabal? Like Nabal, are you going to be a fool and such a wicked man that no one can talk to you? I'm not a Nabal, no, no, no. I'm in the right here. Nabal thought he was in the right. Who is this person? Are you going to do that? When you hear of Jesus Christ this morning and the fact that he is talking about your ingratitude towards you, towards him right now, are you going to say, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Who is this Jesus Christ? Are you going to resist the truth and continue to the death and destruction of fools in hell? Or are you going to be an Abigail and seek reconciliation with Christ? Are you going to confess your sin? Are you going to trust in Christ's atoning sacrifice? You don't even have to offer a gift. Anything you offer will be incomplete. It'll be pathetic offering to make up for your sin. You don't even have to offer a gift from your own self. All you have to do is trust in Christ's death, his sacrifice, his body and blood. Are you going to offer that to Jesus? Are you going to beg for forgiveness and acknowledge Christ's righteousness this morning? And then are you going to know with many of us this morning the joyful result of reconciliation with the King, with the new David, with Jesus Christ? The joy of knowing that Christ has heard our cry and has granted our request for forgiveness. Why do we have such joy in knowing that? Well, we know that Jesus is no longer coming as a warrior with his sword to punish us for eternity for our sin. No, we know that the Lord Jesus is now coming as our heavenly groom to take us home, to be with him at the great wedding supper of the Lamb and to dwell with him for eternity in joy and peace. That is why Christians say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because he's not the warrior to them. He's the groom. They've been released from their bondage to sin and now have a marriage to the great heavenly groom. So I've warned us all this morning of our ingratitude to God, our ingratitude to Christ, And I've warned us all this morning of Christ's wrath. What's your response? What's your response? Abigail's or Nabal's? 
Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's come to him. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous King of Israel. And we thank you for your protection and your kindness towards us. We confess, Lord Jesus, our ingratitude. And we ask that you accept your body and blood for our sin and forgive us for your glory. And Lord, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to rejoice in being your bride and all the peace and security that such a position brings. And we pray that you would do this to your praise and to the glory of our God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.